Hello, Hello Hot Girls! <laughs> so, welcome to another episode of the podcast Hot Girl Historian. Histories, uh, histories. Histories, not historian. <laughs> Sorry. So, I don't know exactly why I'm here, because I'm not a historian, I'm not a girl, and I'm not hot. But thanks for the invitation, Claire. Thank you, Gil. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bernard Stroff and Dr. Gian Pians. I'm very excited to have you here to speak about the exhibition today. I've shouted it out multiple times on our podcast, Esperanto Worlds, Scotland Postcards and the Creation of International Language, which is on display at the Wardlaw Museum in St. Andrews in the research studio until May 29th. Correct. Correct. So, um, yeah, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I think now we'll introduce who we have here at the tables. Thank you for having us today. My name is Bernhard Struck. I'm a historian working here at the School of History at St. Andrews um, a number of years now, close to 15. Um, research expertise, interest um, in the past have covered uh, continental Europe, 18th and 19th century. Um, I have an interest in Polish history, German history, French history. Um, in the past, I've covered things like statistics, travel writing, cartography, and much more recently, and this is what we will be talking about today, Esperanto. I grew up in northern Germany. Um, perhaps that relates later to it, or relates to one of my research interests, border regions. So I come from the German-Danish border region, um, where minority languages are spoken, Danish in particular. That's where I grew up. I went to university in Kiel, northern Germany, on the Baltic coast, so deep in my heart, uh, my soul. I'm a Baltic boy. I'm a Beach Boy. I went later on to Berlin um, to complete my undergraduate degree in as a major in history, philosophy and political science or IR, and then went on to do a PhD between Berlin and Paris as a so-called co-to-tell, and that led me to um, European travel writing roughly between 1750 and 1850 in comparative and transnational perspectives. Um, and after teaching in Berlin at the Free University between 2003 and 2006, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough, will always be grateful to land a job here at St. Andrews. Um, obviously, in between, have traveled around a bit, uh, have taught at a number of other places, uh, most recently 2020 at the University of Prague, at the Charles University, and broadly interest in European transnational history uh, topics. Nice. OK. Guillaume, do you want to go next? Okay. So, my name is Guilherme Fjernes. Um, I'm a social anthropologist. I also work at the University of St. Andrews. I work here as a Leverhulme Research Fellow. So, I'm funded by the Leverhulme Trust to work on a three-year project here at the university. And even though I'm a social anthropologist, I'm based at the School of History, working with Bernard in this project about Esperanto and internationalism. Uh, originally, I'm Brazilian, but... Then I did my undergraduate degree in social sciences in Brazil at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Then a master's in social anthropology also in Rio de Janeiro at the National Museum. And then I moved to Manchester in England to do my PhD in social anthropology. And in my PhD, I was researching the connections between Esperanto and political activism in France, mostly in Paris, because I was curious about why so many Esperanto speakers in Paris were communists and why so many young Esperanto speakers in Paris had some kind of connection or interest in open source software. Because for me, there was no obvious connection between this constructed language and software. But that's why I did my research in France. And I also lived in France for one year to do my ethnographic fieldwork there. 
and I've been working at the University of St. Andrews since March last year. And I don't think I need an introduction considering it's my podcast, but I could introduce how I got interested into, I guess, Esperanto in, with working with both these academics. I met Bernard in my second year at university when I applied to the Laid Law Scholarship, which is now over two years ago. Yeah. And <laughs> we were just talking about why I got interested in Esperanto. This is one of the questions that comes up later. And I don't really have a very inspiring answer. I was looking through the projects for the Laidlaw Foundation, for the predefined projects, because you can do your own project. But I was like, there's no way. There's no way I'm like coming up with my own project. So I looked, and it was only like modern history research project, but I still found it interesting. I had no idea what Esperanto was before I looked into the Laidlaw page. Um, But speaking with Bernard, he then, we have one meeting, and then he was like, what are you interested in? We can kind of make it whatever you want in a way. Like you can focus on what you want to do. And he suggested some like gender history or women's history. And I was like, okay, we'll run with it. And so I focus mostly on like with this, exp- ex- I keep on calling it an expedition with my friends. We exhibition. could go on exhibition. Why, why not? <laughs> <laughs> with, the ex- with the exhibition on women Esperantists in Scotland and England. And the exhibition, which we'll talk about, is mostly on Scottish Esperantists. What we find is there's a lot of women Esperantists at this time in the mm-hmm. early 1900s up to the First World War. So, Bernard, I want to ask you, since you are you started the Esperanto and Internationalism project in the Institute for Transnational History, right? So what brought you to Esperanto in the first place? As you said, like your background isn't in Esperanto, while Guillaume has done his PhD on related to Esperanto. Yeah, so if I may, that answer might be a slightly longer one, if I may. So Claire just mentioned the Institute for, Inst- uh, for Transnational and Spatial uh, History here at St. Andrews. And that initiative goes back to, I believe, 2014, 2015, because we had a reading group and a center first, but we launched a new MLIT program, and that's been running now since 2015, so for the last seven or eight years. And... Along teaching on a new MLIT program, I guess I was looking for a new research project anyway at some point. But to be perfectly honest, Esperanto was not on my radar. It was then 2017 that the British publisher Bloomsbury got in touch with me. They spotted our MLIT program and the Institute and got in touch and said, Bernard, would you be interested in writing a kind of synthesis, which is very typical in the British context that covers the period later 18th century to early 21st century, roughly to the present, in a transnational perspective. That's a pretty big ask, but I got excited. I wrote a book proposal, and that's actually the the project I'm still working on. So currently, my main book project is to finish a bit of advertising here, Modern Mm -hmm. Europe, a Transnational uh, History. And I'm co-writing this with two colleagues, um, James Karani, Big Shout here in Durham, and Jan Kura in Prague. So, and this then coincided with... um, my idea to launch a new um, honors module. So a a module here at St. Andrews for third and fourth year students, by the way, Claire, at some point did this module. module. And this is a very open module um, that teaches in the first couple of weeks, just the method of comparative transnational global history. But then ideally we let the students just fly and develop their own research project, as long as they have a cross-border transnational component. Now I'm coming closer um, to your question because Claire asked me to focus on the question. She likes to elaborate. Elaborate. I'd like to be honest here. I never really, I knew Esperanto vaguely. I guess when you ask Esperanto, many people would slightly nod and say, okay, one of the planned languages. Okay. 
and I don't didn't know much about it until a student came into this particular module doing and practicing transnational history. And he mentioned Esperanto and ultimately did a small essay with it uh, within the module, but didn't do much with it. But it was one of those moments in teaching, and I guess this is why I love teaching, where something just stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And um, once the whole marking was done and the semester was done and just, I started reading in earnest. And as we will perhaps discuss a bit later in terms of what do we know uh, about Esperanto, what is out there, how have historians or other subjects like Guillermo social anthropologist approaches, there is quite a bit out there. And we can elaborate on this later. But I really got into it and uh, discovered then in 2018 that there's a lot out there on Samenhof, the maker. We can come back to this on individual countries, like the link between Esperanto and the Spanish Civil War. But I saw huge potential in the daily lives of early Esperantists in the early 20th century in particular. This is where I focus on mainly on the period 1900 to the 1920s. And what I'm interested in and was looking for was a European-wide transnational project, ideally one that could unite or bring together Eastern and Western Europe, and we can, can come back to that. And I think at some point in 2018-19, it dawned on me that there is potentially a goldmine in the project of, mm-hmm. or in, in a topic around the early Esperanto movement. Maybe stop here for a second. And that really got me going around <laughs> 2019. Yeah, Guillaume, do you want to add to that? Because I think you probably have a different reason for Esperanto. Yeah, so I think I came across Esperanto in a very different way. Because, as I said in the beginning, I'm Brazilian. And in Brazil, Esperanto is spoken mostly by religious people who are interested in a religion called Spiritism. So it's basically a mix of Christianity with beliefs in reincarnation. I never knew this. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) News to me. (laughs) So my grandmother had a very close friend who used to write books in Esperanto about Spiritism. And at some point, her friend was getting old and she had to move in to live with her son. And she had this huge library in her house with books in Esperanto that she wouldn't be able to bring them with her. So she decided to donate almost all of these books to me because I was very close to my grandmother and this friend was very close to my grandmother too. And thanks to my grandmother, this friend of hers knew that I liked to read and she decided to give me all these books. So at some point when I was maybe 15, 14, 15 years old, I had three huge shelves in my bedroom full of books that I could not read because they were written (laughs) in a different language. And at that time, I didn't know the content of the book. So I was curious just to know what they were about. And I promised myself that at some point in my life, maybe I would take an Esperanto course just to be able to read the titles and know what the books were about and maybe have a look at some of them. And that's why when I started my undergraduate degree, by coincidence or not, there was a free Sperranto course very close to my university, and I started taking Sperranto classes. And after six months studying Sperranto, I realized that all those books were about religion. I was not particularly interested in reading them. But then I became curious about how there was this idea of constructing an international language a language that would bring the humankind together, would uh, bring people from different backgrounds closer somehow. And some of my classmates in that tiny room in the city center of Rio de Janeiro who were learning Esperanto with me, they talked all the time about the International Esperanto Movement, about the Universal Esperanto Association, the annual Universal Congresses of Esperanto. And 
I was curious about why they were so excited about that because most of them were from the working classes. They never traveled abroad. They most likely would never go abroad. They didn't have pen pals. They didn't use Sperato to speak to people from other countries online or anything like that. Basically, they were all native speakers of Portuguese and they spoke in Sperato only with other native speakers of Portuguese. And I was curious about how an international language could be so relevant in a very national and local context and without being used internationally at all. And that's when I, I was studying social sciences back in the day, and then later social anthropology. And this became something I was interested in through an anthropological lens. And that's how I came across Esperanto. And I wanted to learn the language just for a couple of months and ended up staying with it for longer, but now for other purposes. I feel like at this point, we should probably explain what is Esperanto for anyone who doesn't know, because... A lot of young people, probably the people most likely to listen to this in my age range, like really have no clue. Some older people, when they see, so for the exhibition, I, we made little postcards that are like smaller posters that uh, we had the idea, like you can just pick up, you'll see them mm -hmm. somewhere, you can pick them up, give them to someone <laughs> and to have them in the bakery that I work at. And it's funny because sometimes older people will come in and be like, oh, it's pronto. I remember when I was young, like yeah. that that was something, but young people are like, all my friends are like, what's, what's that? So maybe we can get into that and just, why older people remember it. Just interesting that you say this, Claire, older people, I'm not sure what you have in mind, me or <laughs> even older. But when I first, or my dad was asking, my dad was born 1940. Um, I think I must have told him about my, my current research interest, and that is Esperanto, about two years ago. And he was the same. Um, mm. So in the 1950s, 60s, when he went to school, or he said, yeah, that was a big thing. Yeah. Evening courses locally, again, where I grew up in northern Germany, he immediately said, oh, that was a thing. Is that still around? I said, yeah, of course, it's mm -hmm. still around. Yeah, it's interesting to think about this generational issue in a way because i think younger generations as claire just said most likely don't know what sprout is and in the meantime like middle-aged people or older people these days would think that sprout failed mm. that's they heard of it back in the day but they don't hear of it anymore as if sprout had no speakers it was almost a dead language or like a language project that didn't work in the end and it's interesting to contrast these perceptions. Should I explain what Esperanto is? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so Esperanto is a constructed language. It was, as some people call it, an artificial language that was constructed on a desk <laughs> by this one guy called Ludwig Leiser Zamenhof, who lived in the Russian Empire. And he initially drafted Esperanto in the late 19th century. And the first Esperanto book was launched in 1887. So why did this guy come up with a language out of nowhere like that? So he was not alone at the time. So he, he created this constructed language just like there were many other people creating other constructed languages in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And Zamenhof wanted to use this constructed language to bring people together, to enable uh, language comprehension and mutual understanding among people from different national, ethnic, and linguistic backgrounds. So, for example, here in our conversation, uh, Bernat Maraton is German. My Maraton is Portuguese, and Claire's Maraton is English. So here we are recording this podcast in English. So we could claim that language has become the word language. Okay, in a way, some people would say that that makes sense, especially if you are in an academic environment in which many universities abroad are also teaching English. 
but of course English is not as widespread as some people would claim. And but it's interesting that we are using English as our bridge language here to bring the three of us together and to enable us to communicate with you who's listening to this podcast. But then Esperanto brings this whole perspective of fairness and egalitarianism because clearly, as you can hear, English is not my mother tongue. So every time I speak in English, I make mistakes. And when I'm speaking English, I have to think about the content of what I'm saying. Plus, I have to choose carefully the words I'm using. And I have to form sentences in my mind before I actually say them. Because uh, speaking English doesn't feel natural to me. So it's a lot of work, extra work that I have to do, not only to know what I want to say, plus know how I can say what I want to say. Claire doesn't have these issues because she was raised speaking English. So English for her is very natural. So we could wonder, why am I speaking her language and she's not speaking my language, for example? Mm. And the idea of Esperanto is, Esperanto is no one's mother tongue. There's no place in the world where everyone speaks Esperanto. Esperanto is not used on a daily basis in any local community or anything like this. So the idea is that when people speak Esperanto, we're all leaving our linguistic comfort zones to like meet each other halfway. And this common ground that Esperanto establishes would establish a more egalitarian space for fairer communication, or so they claim. Because the idea is that everyone would have to go to, through the trouble of learning this language that is no one's first language. Of course, it's not entirely fair because for someone whose mother tongue is German or Portuguese, Esperanto sounds much easier and is much easier to learn than for someone whose mother tongue is Mandarin or Japanese. But still, the idea is that everyone would have to go through a language learning process. That's not a matter of language acquisition, but language learning. And that's what Esperanto brings to the table, this whole discussion about egalitarianism and fairness when it comes to international communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very concise definition or explanation what Esperanto is. Um, the one thing I would pick up is, and that's often raised and may lead to confusion, that's neutrality. I think you briefly mentioned mm -hmm. that, Guillermo. Mm. So I think, but neutrality in that context may have two meanings. So as Guillermo was saying, in many ways, Esperanto is not, even though it's designed as a bridge language, as an auxiliary communication tool. It's not neutral because, as Guillermo said, it is ultimately a European language. Zamenhof constructed the language mm. at a desk, looking at statistics across Europe, how many Romans, uh, Romans language speakers, including Italians, French speakers, Spanish speakers. So the vocabulary comes around 70% from Romans, Latin languages, about 20-23% from German language roots. And then there's a bit of um, Slavic vocabulary in there, and it looks very familiar to anyone who has knowledge in, in, in Latin, Italian. So from that perspective, I think one cannot say it's a neutral language, as Guillermo said, for someone coming from an African language, from Japanese, it's much harder to learn. Mm -hmm. But I would try to rescue the idea of neutrality that, as Guillermo said, everybody who, who is able to use Esperanto as a bridge lang language has to acquire that language. And it's I find the idea fascinating. If What if we had this conversation here between a Portuguese native speaker, a German native speaker, and an American English native speaker, at this neutral platform, and it could be Esperanto or anything else, but mm. on, on a neutral ground of where we all have to make an effort. And and I think what it does potentially um, is that we are all more conscious about what 
the language carries with it. And in many ways, Claire is here the native speaker and is at an advantage of speaking that language. And I feel this for the past 15 years, as much as I like working here, living in Scotland, I feel, and I would say I speak English at a very confident, comfortable level. But whenever a conversation goes to, it could be a TV show that is very British in the 1970s, 80s, I struggle to relate to those kind of contexts. So I think in that respect, I would say, yes, the idea of Esperanto neutral language is is fascinating yeah that's what i would add i think also at the time like we've spoke about zamenhof um you know in Białystok, he is gets this idea from the issue of like ukrainians and polish and russians and like all this <laughs> yeah and like ethnic issues like with jewish people and stuff in this period in uh, Białystok is in today's, I mean, Poland has such a complicated yeah, territorial yeah. history. Białystok today, you'll find it in northeastern Poland towards the oh. Kaliningrad and Lithuanian border. Right. Okay. That's so. fine. I mean, it has shifted <laughs> over so many. And back then it was part of so, the Western so. Tsarist Empire and the so-called Pale of Settlements where the majority, if not not all, but the vast majority of uh, Jews who were living in, in the Tsarist Russia lived at the time. And Białystok had a population, a Jewish population. Again, they might be Polish speakers, but at the same time, Yiddish speakers and, and mm. a myriad of languages. So that's a bit of the character of Białystok, surrounded by a myriad of languages. And at this time, I think we'll get into this later when we get to the exhibition, but the time that Zamenhof makes this language and the time that starts to pick up the early 1900s is when um, technology is evolving, but also like it's not as easy to travel and to connect with people who are speaking other language as it is today with the internet, with Duolingo. And that's, I think, what's so fascinating, at least to me, about the language is how people travel uh, far and wide to come and speak a language that is not their mother tongue um, and speak about so many topics from yeah. the Red Cross to Christianity, the Bible to, um, I don't know, singing songs and playing games um, with people from all over the world. When we say all over the world, it's not just Europe, but people from uh, the African continent, from Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. And what I, f I find very curious about this is that, as Claire just said, Esperanto is a language like any other. So it has the vocabulary for you to speak of any subject. But some people would choose to speak about specific subjects in Esperanto. And this is what brings Bernard and I together, I think, our interest in this transnational perspective. Mm -hmm. Because then, for example, as I said in the beginning, Esperanto in Brazil is linked to this religion. So many people would speak Esperanto in Brazil, or many Brazilian Esperanto speakers would speak about this religion when they speak in Esperanto. And in France, where I did my field work for my PhD, it is like a totally different situation because most Esperanto speakers in France from like a certain age, are communists. And in Spain, Catalonia, many of them are anarchists. So what happens that some people from certain backgrounds, national backgrounds, or who were born and raised in specific regions of the world, would end up choosing to speak about certain topics in a language more than others. So in my mother tongue, I would speak of, I don't know, cooking, of uh, household chores, of academic stuff. And any topic about the weather, whatever. But in Esperanto, many people wouldn't have conversations about the weather. They would have conversations about <laughs> politics or religion. Yeah. And why is that? Why wouldn't French Esperanto speakers use French for that? They would use Esperanto instead. So I think that's mm -hmm. the magic of it. Because it's a language that comes linked to a purpose. 
it was like created with a purpose of bringing people together and in practice it developed in a way that many different groups in the creation of this international community of Esperanto speakers they end up specializing let's say in one topic or not in one interest or another I think from this we can go into where is the research on Esperanto because I feel like we're getting into what the research has about Esperanto what is out there on Esperanto where the research is going where you think it might go further where it has been like Should I start sort of yeah. with the historical part and maybe Guillermo can mm-hmm. pick up on social anthropology, mm. sociology. So um, where I would say research is, um, I'm happy to leave this to, to Guillermo to say a few more words, but when I first started really getting interested and in, in just going to libraries and checking out things, there's a lot on the linguistic side on the language, mm. how it was constructed. I said very briefly how many words come percentage-wise from Romance languages and Germanic languages and so on. I find that interesting, but it doesn't quite, it's not quite who I am, how I'm trained. In terms of the historical side, I think it's a very typical picture for historians. On the one hand, we have a number of, and I would say a good handful of biographies on surprise, surprise, Zamenhof, the man mm. who sat at his desk. Big and, man. and he's obviously, he's, he's admired in, in the movement. People are fascinated and he is a fascinating character. He shaped this language. He is, a, is, is in many ways, a very ordinary uh, Typical, he's an ordinary eye doctor at the time. He's struggling to make ends meet and he spends time and time and personal uh, finances. And there wasn't much money going around uh, at the time into making the language, also making this language community. We might come back to, you know, on the one hand, but then making a language community, getting that off the ground is, is a fascinating story. Yeah. Anyhow, we have a number of biographies on Samanov's life in the Tsarist Empire in Warsaw his Jewish background, and so on. And then historians, and that's the second strand, would say, okay, I study Esperanto in X, Y, or Z. And I think here we have research by great colleagues who work on the relation between Esperanto and Spain, for instance, in the Spanish Civil War, because in particular the Republican side used Esperanto because it was this international um, uh, army. Um, So, And others would say, okay, I study Esperanto in France or in Britain. So we have a number of sort of national studies, not many overall, but this is pretty much where it ends. And and I think this is from someone like myself who has an interest, as I said earlier, in comparative and transnational questions. I am interested in the transnational dimensions of the movement, how it functioned, how it networked at the time. And what I find interesting then is and that's a transnational question to ask. Samenhof devised the language in Warsaw in the Tsarist Empire. He had the idea, if not the dream, to create something as a tool, as a bridge of words that would get these ethno-linguistic tensions out of conversations when people would meet. Um, he toyed for a while with Zionism and then said, oh, that's just another nationalist idea, so forget mm. about that. But what I find interesting, once the language community, once the the language starts traveling and the language community around 1900 starts going, I am interested in what were people doing with it, for what purposes. And that might bring us to the exhibition and this John Beveridge as our main character uh, later on. From the perspective of linguistics and the social sciences, just complementing what Bernard just said, there are a lot of studies about Esperanto in linguistics and on Esperanto literature. Because when it comes to Esperanto literature, there is both literature produced originally in Esperanto and or, uh, translated from re- literature originally written in other languages. And there are many works and st- studies on that. And Esperanto is particularly popular among linguists, sometimes in a good, sometimes in a bad way, mm-hmm. because there is this 
field within linguistics called interlinguistics, which is the study of constructed languages, not only Esperanto, but Esperanto, of course, has a place among them. Uh, but the fact that Esperanto is within this subfield of interlinguistics also means that Esperanto is not very welcome in many other fields of linguistics. Because if we think about the approach of Noam Chomsky, for example, for you to do Chomsky and linguistics, you have to focus on language used by native speakers. If Esperanto doesn't have native speakers, then you cannot do that with them. Because the language wouldn't flow naturally from people as when people acquire a language from birth. In social anthropology and sociology, there are some studies, mostly are more quantitative surveys that try to create some sort of profile of Esperanto speakers at a certain period. So there are sociologists doing the profile of Esperanto speakers in Britain in the 1980s, just like some other sociologists doing the same profile of Esperanto speakers in Italy in 1990s. And most of the historical Esperanto, uh, research about Esperanto focused on the first half of the 20th century, which was in a way the most dynamic moment when this speech community was being created. When in the beginning, there were no speakers of the language, only the creator of the language could speak it. And once he tried to take this community off the ground, of course, he had to gather other speakers, he had to meet people, to exchange postcards and letters. And that was a very exciting moment for historians, precisely because you could see a speech community in the making. And the second half of the 20th century doesn't have as many studies about Esperanto as before, because this is the moment when the speech community is established, when things are a bit more solid already. One thing about uh, Esperanto research, um, spoiler alert, we are also in the process, very early stages of writing a monograph. Yes. Woo, about Esperanto in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I am doing my research for that. Uh, yes, I'm an undergrad trying to write a chapter of a book. It's an interesting process. But my research focuses on women Esperantists in Scotland. In Antwerp in 1911, there is the International Esperanto Congress, where people come from all over the world to come speak Esperanto, as we spoke about before. There's 100 people who come from Scotland. Half of those people um, are women. And I think it corresponds with when we go to archives and we see all these images. And there's one image from this, you know, this yeah. Aberdeen 1919. And it is almost a 50-50 split. It is, it is perhaps the most progressive uh, gender balanced movement that I could think of at the at time. At the time, yeah. And my research really focused, it was a bit micro-historical. From John Beveridge, I looked at his daughters and his family more widely, and we find out that these daughters are doing incredible things with Esperanto. One of his, his old, eldest, uh, Heather, writes about her work in chemistry in the International Science Review using Esperanto. Louise Beveridge helps out a lot of local Esperanto clubs in Scotland, such as Perth. She, she's there when another woman, actually, Jessie King, gives a speech on or lecture on Esperanto in Dundee and she's there with John Beveridge who is the man of the exhibition uh, and and so she's there in 1906 when the Dundee club was started and I think what I was thinking when Bernard was saying that Zamenhof is like you know the big man the biography of Zamenhof 
we're sitting in Bernard's office and to the right of me, I was staring at it. He has this whole bookshelf of Hitler books, huge, huge Hitler books, which makes sense if he's a German historian. But what I love about this Esperanto research and specifically my research is how anti like big, one big man or just one big Zamenhof it is. Like my chapter will just focus on these like women who otherwise wouldn't be written about who did extraordinary things with Esperanto and with their careers. And one of the big things is that there are these women who travel to congresses. One of the first things people would say, okay, if it's half, we're just the wives. But a lot of them travel alone or travel with their sisters. So it's not it's not just like couples going to Antwerp as well. So that's what I really like about where the Esperanto research is going. To my knowledge, Yami, you've been longer in this kind of research. Um, anyhow, to my knowledge, no, nothing exists on the question of gender and women in particular mm. in, in the movement, which is really astonishing. So those of you listeners who are by now hooked onto Esperanto, <laughs> the largest collection you find uh, online is go to the Vienna yeah. National, um, the catalog of the Vienna National Library. There's a museum dedicated to plant languages and they have a huge online collection, digitized material, and you will find a number of images early 20th century of clubs in Copenhagen and elsewhere. And it is pretty much a 50-50 mm. split. When you look, I think, at the construction of the language, I'm not an expert here, and you see something like, and I'm just using a few Esperanto words here, and the German speakers uh, amongst you will know this, La Tago is the day, La Yaro is the year. So there's always a feminine or this feminine sounding article. It's always La, where substantive uh, nominatives always end on an O. So in many mm. ways, it's a gender neutral language. What else could we say, Guillaume? Adjectives always end on an A. Mm -hmm. So it is it is fairly gender neutral. It has mm -hmm. feminine elements, it has masculine elements. That may not have been the main reason why it attracted so many women yeah. early on. But anyway, coming back to your question, no. To my surprise, um, there is not a single volume article out there that addresses uh, the gender element and why so many women were attracted to the movement. John Beveridge, as we'll get into, is an extremely interesting character. But we have chemists, we have doctors, missionaries gosh, journalists, people who are traveling everywhere with the like the funniest hobbies and super interesting careers. So just thinking about other social movements at the time, because if we compare the Esperanto movement with other movements that also Esperanto speakers were joining, mm -hmm. like groups of communists and anarchists, as I just mentioned before, there are many more women among Esperanto speakers than among communists or members of communist parties back in the day, in the early... 20th century. So it seems that the Esperanto movement was quite unique in the sense of attracting women like this. Maybe, and what I'm saying next is just my hypothesis, because I, I'm not aware of any publication on women in the Esperanto movement, but maybe it has to do with this idea that Esperanto is bringing a discussion about fairness, about justice, about equality. And maybe that made some room for women to be included. Yeah. yeah, I think we can move on into get into the good stuff, this exhibition. So Bernard, where do we start? Where did we start? We started years ago now when we were wearing masks and special collections. I would love to say that it starts with my project, but I don't know if it does. <laughs> it surely all started with your your work. No, Claire, fair enough. And um, when you came and saw the the advert for the late law, mm -hmm. I mean a general sort of an undergraduate research scheme generally related to Esperanto and internationalism, we then had a chat and I said, Well, I think there is a huge gap when it comes to 
telling the story of women in the movement. And there's a lot to be done. Um, it goes back to even before mask and COVID. Um, I had done, I had visited a number of um, Esperanto-related archives and libraries in Germany, in Vienna, in, in the Czech Republic in particular, because Bohemia is an early hotbed, hotbed of the Esperanto movement. But then at some point coming back from archives, I just typed in Esperanto here in Little East Coast Scotland um, at our university into the uh, university catalog. And to my surprise, or maybe not surprise, it made just boom. Uh, and we have a huge collection here. So it again tells us Esperanto was everywhere in the early mm. 20th century. And the one gem that we are sitting on, and I had no clue, is the so-called John Beveridge collection. John Beveridge, um, again, is the main actor, if you want, in our exhibition here at the Wardlow Museum. And what makes this collection so unique is, and I've never seen anything like this, is the deeply personal material, like postcards. And we can talk more about postcards and correspondence, but a number of postcards that you can see at the exhibition that come from Oslo, from Sarajevo, from Northern Africa, from India, all to Dundee between 1908 and 1910. And all this happens against the background of the first international congresses, um, the organization of the movement by the so-called Ya Libro yearbooks that collected all the addresses of thousands of thousands of Esperanto speakers and learners at the time. So I think this was the beginning of the, that I saw something very unique in the collection that we happen to have here. Again, John Beveridge spent most of his time some 20 minutes or 20 miles away, kilometers away from St. Andrews in Dundee as a Presbyterian clergyman. And that is a very, very unique collection. I've never seen anything like this. What attracted me about this collection is that, as I said before, no one is forced to speak Esperanto. Because I was born in Brazil, I had no other uh, choice. I had to speak Portuguese. And if I'm working in the UK, I have to speak English. But no one has to speak Esperanto. But still, so many people over time have made the choice of speaking or learning and speaking this language. And when we dig into a collection like this one, we come across the reasons why some people decided to speak the language and what they do with it. Because if John Beveridge was a Presbyterian clergyman, one of his interests was that he wanted to discuss religion. So he was exchanging letters and postcards with other Esperanto speakers who were also interested in religious affairs or who were themselves priests or had other positions in other churches across the world. And also he was one of those who translated the New Testament from Greek into Esperanto. And his daughters also had other interests and motivations to be using the language. So once you learn a language like this, what do you do with it? And this is what one of these collections enables us to do, to learn, because by now, thanks to all these biographies that Bernard mentioned, we know very well why Zamenhof created the language. But then the question we want to answer here is why would some people in Scotland, in the city called Dundee in the Capital 1910s, the oh yeah, <laughs> the fourth biggest city in Scotland oh, these days. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sundee, apparently, which is not true. There's no sun in Dundee. Anyway. So why would these people, this family specifically, learn Esperanto? And what would they use it for? Are they actually using it as an international language or just like my Brazilian classmates, they were just using it to speak it with other people in Scotland or England? I feel like the 
thing that struck me this was my first go at archives and material and I guess it was a pretty fun collection to go into first but there's such a range of material it's not just books or not just papers or birth certificates or anything like that it's postcards that are beautiful that you'll see on display at the museum or um another thing which on beverage which is so funny to us is he has so much about he's obsessed with Norway and Scandinavian cultures he is into beekeeping. He we have a huge, huge file now hitting 40 pages. And that's really just the, the it's number. Just the bare it, it's bones. big. It's, and we have something called the Yar Yar Libra. I always mispronounce it, which is the year yearbooks or yearbook, yearbook of Esperanto speakers. I think the 1907 that we have in in some reproduction in the exhibition has 304 or five pages. And you have to imagine, it, it looks like a telephone book. If you remember what a telephone book once was. <laughs> I don't think they <laughs> With like 50 or 60 names, including addresses and then how to reach those Esperanto names. You can get a sense of gender by looking through names. And the scope is just astonishing from Africa to Japan, to, to Brazil, to Bohemia, smaller places, bigger places, Warsaw, Prague, but more local places, including here in Scotland, like Aberdeen or Arbroath. And and, and so the, the, the geographical spread, once it starts taking off in the early days, the years of the 20th century, is, is really quite astonishing. And with the Yara Libro, what is so fascinating about it, some parts of it organized by country, but some of the pages that we have displayed on a wall in the exhibition are just these pages of addresses from all over on one page. You have Warsaw, you have Brookline, Massachusetts, which yeah. is where near where I'm from, you have Glasgow, um, London, gosh madagascar addresses yeah. on one page so it's just like you get this like sense of like a mess of just people putting in their addresses sending it saying i want to receive because i imagine from what i understand this address book is people who want to receive esperanto chronicles and materials mm -hmm. yeah. and like have put their name down with the associate the yeah. universal esperanto association yeah. um so it, it is truly fascinating and um what else is there in the collection we have art like job beverage writes about nordic uh weddings in Esperanto, he doesn't write about beekeeping, but he has beekeeping material. He's in touch with a lot of Oslo professors because he's obsessed with Norway. Apparently, he gets stuck in Norway during the First World War. Apparently, apparently, according to his daughter in his biography in the collection. He's and also, just... he learned Norwegian. Yes. So <laughs> it seems that he studied Norwegian also with the help of Esperanto speakers because yeah. he kept in touch with Esperanto speakers from Norway. Apparently, they were the ones who welcomed him in his many visits to the country. And most likely, he was helped by Norwegian Esperanto speakers to learn Norwegian. And he also, uh, <laughs> this was a debate when we were pulling out the objects, deciding um, what to put in the ex exhibition. <laughs> I had the idea of taking out the postcard from Zamenhof to John Beveridge, but he mm. is in touch with the original Zamenhof at some point. Yeah, they are discussing part of the uh, the sermon of the, the sermon on what they call on it. the mount. Yeah, in Esperanto, it's La Predico sur la Monto. It's yeah. the sermon on the mountain. So mm. they do discuss, or the postcard seems to hint that Zamenhof and Beveridge and others were discussing how to how to best translate the New Testament and the sermon into into Esperanto. Also, because at the same time, John Beveridge was translating the New Testament. Uh, from Greek into Esperanto, and Zamenhof was translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Esperanto. Mm -hmm. So they also kept in touch to agree on which words to use for God, for grace, mm -hmm. for pray, prayer, and things like that. They had to agree on vocabulary because Zamenhof created the language, but obviously he didn't create every single word that we would need. Mm -hmm. He left vocabulary development with the speech community. 
and then he and Joe Beveridge and many others like us can also come up with new words for things that are not named yet in Esperanto. Mm -hmm. So we start in special collections. It starts with the three of us going to special collections late last last academic year, early this Pretty much a year, year ago. March, oh, okay, April, yeah. Guillermo yeah. arrived in March 2022. We had been to the collection, Claire and I, and then Before. from, yeah, so March, March, April last year, we said there's something very unique in it. Could this be something for a wider audience? Why hide this behind paywalls of written articles or books? So I think this is where we started. And we saw here, not here, in special collections with our computers, taking notes, like kind of transcribing what we found. And then where did we go from there? We got in touch with museums. So that was mostly Bernard was like doing the logistics. Yeah, it went from sort of pitching an idea first informally in an email and then sort of a formal application or note of interest, which I think was seen by a board somewhere at, in this university. And they got back rather quickly and, mm. and excited saying, oh, this does look like quite unique material. And then it is ultimately a small exhibition. It is the so-called research studio. It's a one, one room exhibition. All other larger spaces would have taken perhaps more a time frame of two or three years because well, there's yeah. a lot of planning. So this research studio all in one room allowed us to, to complete the project within roughly one year because it's only been 10 days ago that we had the launch. I remember yeah. in the summer of my second year, I remember getting the message on Teams saying, you know, I have this idea about exhibition and I've always really, I've loved museums my whole yeah. life and I'm really interested in curation. When you sent me yeah. that message, I remember going, ah, yeah. could I help with that? And um, yeah, so it, like the idea sprouted a while ago and then, yeah, the logistics. And then when did you turn in the application? I remember the, we looked over the application. When did you turn the application to museums? I think that was pretty much a year ago in, in March or April. Mm. And that coincided, it still has pandemic hangovers because yeah. Guillermo was meant to start September 2021 yeah. and coming from Brazil with logistics pandemic it had to be delayed so Guillermo started in March 2023 and once you had yeah. arrived sorry 2022 yeah. and once you had arrived I thought I think I had a sense that we have a lot and curating even at a small scale is not just a job you do over the weekend mm. or in two weeks so once I thought Guillermo was on board and you were enthusiastic thank you so much for doing that Claire that all your enthusiasm from late law to to creating something bigger I thought okay with the three of us I I love teamwork it's something I miss <laughs> at times in academic work I think I'm okay alone at my desk but I do love teamwork but I also then thought sort of the unique nature of the collection apart I thought for someone like Guillermo coming to a new place, teamwork would be nice anyway. Mm. You know, you groove someone in who's just moved from sunny, it's, it's <laughs> six degrees outside, it's the east coast of Scotland. But also perhaps a way of Guillermo to, as a social anthropologist on board, to go back to historical material. Mm. Is it fair to say this was your first sort of archival experience with like as we work as historians, you go and you open postcards, your libro, stuff from 120 years ago. So I thought maybe this would be a great way of collaborating, doing something different, but also from some for someone who does come from a different way of working, fieldwork, interviews, as Guillaume has done in Paris, mm -hmm. Paris as a nice way of, of finding his feet in, in history, but also doing something meaningful. And we might come back to the question of why do this mm. exhibition in the first place um, mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Yeah, that was my first contact with archival research, because in anthropology, sometimes we can use archives, as I did in my PhD, but as secondary material, because the core of everything we write as anthropologists is the ethnographic fieldworks, sometimes interviews. Mm. And it was an interesting experience for me, also because as an anthropologist, 
I'm mostly talking to people mm. and joining their meetings and following them in their everyday lives. So if I have a question to ask them, I can ask them. And when it comes to John Beveridge or archival research, if I have a, a question to ask them, they are not there anymore because now I'm studying dead people, not living people anymore. And finding answers has means resorting to other things, to other tools, to documents, archives, and so on. And what we get in the end are fragments. So this exhibition shows the fragments of what we found. As Claire mentioned before, we know that at some point John Beveridge went to Norway and spent some years there. So it seems that he was trapped there during the times of the war. Mm -hmm. But we don't know if at some point he made the deliberate choice of continuing living in Norway and instead of coming back to Scotland, or if that was an accident, or if he planned that in advance. So there are some aspects of this puzzle that we'll never be able to answer. I think with Esperanto as well, there are so many mistakes as well. You see in the ER libros, you see yeah. in the stuff you find with history, I think. Mm -hmm. what I, what's always interesting, and we're looking at very recent history, like in the grand scheme of people who study ancient history and mm -hmm. medieval, but you see these mistakes that lead you off track as well. Or like, who knows if his daughter was accurate with the dates or whatever about um, what, when he leaves and when he leaves for Norway and you find some conflicting material I think with history especially with the John Beveridge collection we find some things that say the age or I wanted to yeah I kind of want to get into what did we hope to do with this exhibition so you spoke about Bernard that you wanted to get rid of this paywall get rid of this like I, I would I would argue like an academic gatekeeping of this material um that we wanted to show the public and I guess for all these it was so like picturesque like the postcards are beautiful the art libros are really interesting so why did we decide to, what did we hope to gain from it? Or no, what did we hope people would gain from it? Who was it for? And what are the key messages? So why why ultimately this exhibition? What are we aiming for and for whom is it? Um, let's start perhaps with the who. My hope would be that anyone who comes to St. Andrews or is at St. Andrews as a student, as a visitor, as a, as a, as a tourist playing golf, would just walk into the museum and at the moment we have this ex created exhibition about Esperanto, Scotland, how Esperantists connected in the early years of the 20th century. So why do this? I said before, but this is something we know because we've been to a number of archives. It is a very unique collection, this uh, John Beveridge collection. Um, so if you were to walk into this one-room exhibition, you would get a bit of the context on when Esperanto was born and how it is constructed. You can play a little bit around with the, the language and then you would see how the language operated, what the Ya Libre enabled Esperantists like John Beveridge, who is simply one example, how he could connect to people across the world for topics that he was interested in, beekeeping, theology, uh, Nordic culture. But my hope would be that we do a number of things in addition that by if I just imagine I were to walk into there spend 10-15 minutes with this question of Esperanto how this worked I think the one hope would be um, wherever people come from to think about the role of languages communication and culture and that perhaps people start thinking okay why do we end up in a world where for better or for worse English has ended up as a global language as a historian this is a very, very recent phenomenon, and we tend to forget about it. This is a phenomenon since at some point after World War II, Americanization, Western culture, from Disney to, 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 to rap music, whatever it is, 
it has become so dominant. Yet it is not a global language if we look at percentage of native speaker or English as an acquired language. And if English is not your native language, and I can tell you, it's a hard way of, of learning a language, speaking in it, teaching in it, writing in it. Um, so I would hope that we can carry as small as it is message, as, as a message to reflect on languages. I mm. do find that the idea of, a, of what we said earlier, neutrality of a language is... Uh, is still a fascinating one to think about. Um, I mean, we're recording this at the time of whether, should we even go there, Russia, Ukraine, yeah. go to war, and I'm not even going there. It's a complex one, but certainly language, culture, mm. the history of the Tsarist empire and the Soviet Union as an empire plays into it. So I think the, the message of, of a neutral language, what could it do to the world, is a fascinating one. And I think it's one that keeps being it is worthy being kept alive and being talked about and the last one i finish here and you can come in there is this myth of failure hanging mm. around esperanto and i think i don't think as a story that judging anything along failure and success is a good way of judging where we go and, and what we work upon i think once you go into the exhibition and in particular by looking at the postcards and the thousands of names in the Yalibro, you start thinking twice was mm. this really a failure around 1914 no it wasn't mm. and i do believe there was a real historical moment in the 1910s and 1920s where english was not a global language sciences at the time were done in three languages in french and pretty much 30, 30, 30, French, German, and English at the time. Russian has a brief period in chemistry, but there is a question, there is a language problem around, around 1900, where we have competing new technologies. Um, so there is a need, and I do think if you look at the mo movement more closely, um, there was a real chance people were looking to solve this Babylonian um, problem in the sciences and communication we have telegraphy but if you can't speak the same language at the two at the two ends of a telegraph cable then you're stuck so and then there is the more tragic story behind uh, esperanto in the 1930s and 40s that it gets killed off during the nazi period i mean nazi germany goes brutally against um, anything that smells of internationalism not to speak of the jewish roots of esperanto and, and samenhof the Soviet Union has a more complicated history with Esperanto, but in the Stalinist years of the 1930s, um, the Soviet Union or the government um, authorities turn uh, against uh, Esperanto, and so does uh, Franco Spain and elsewhere. We don't quite tell that story, but I think it is worthy. It's a positive story. It, it's one that I think escapes this idea of success and failure. So I hope that conveys a bit sort of my passion and, and my reasons for getting it out to a wider public. And so far, feedback seems very, very encouraging. Also, I think, I know Bruno spoke about this in different contexts, but St. Andrews as a university, as a town. Good point. What's oh, coming? Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I didn't want to come in, but it's a St. super St. Andrews point. is, you know, it's a Scottish university, but I would say the majority of students here aren't Scottish. You have a lot of internationals, a lot of English, and then, of course, you have the Scots, but I feel like a lot of times the Scots feel pretty um, a minority in their own country yeah. here. Um, you know, even in my friend group, I have a friend who's German, a friend who's Polish, a friend who's from London, and a friend who's from El Salvador. The students from all over the world, and a lot of students are bilingual or trilingual. Yeah. So, and academics, we have, um, you know, Scottish and English academics, but we also have people like Bernard, people like Yem, who come from other parts of the world. Uh, so golfers, uh, well, most of them come from the US or something, but we also do have people coming here for golf from everywhere. So it is such an international community where something about languages and about 
uh, internationalism would like fits and makes a lot of sense to do something about. Do you want to add to it? And I think another important aspect of our exhibition is that it situates all these discussions about language and diversity within a specific moment, yeah. in a specific place, like the east coast of Scotland <laughs> in the early 20th century, when globalization was already happening. Yeah. So I think every time we think of globalization, we tend to think of computers mm. and airplanes and all that. But back in the day, there was something going on. And we shouldn't think of the 1910s, 1920s as moments when people were totally isolated in their corners of the world. Because then we have these people who are exchanging postcards and letters with people from other countries. And Dundee, believe it or not, was a very international city. Scundee. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Sunday Fundy. (laughs) With the the trade of jute and jute coming from Bengal to Dundee to be processed here Mm. and turn the raw jute into the jute to be commercialized. And then the products made of jute were going to Brazil, to Japan, to the US. Mm. So the harbor in Dundee was a very international space. But of course, people like John Beveridge, he works, for example, in a church. (laughs) He was not in contact with these forms of internationality, but he was very much aware of all these things happening in his backyard. So it's interesting how we try to show in this exhibition that this whole language issue is also connected with the development of means of transportation, means of communication, with the telephone, the telegraph, letters, postcards, and international shipping routes and international postal services. So I think that this is one of the highlights of the exhibition to show how these technologies and these languages are brought together and how they create an early wave of globalization that we tend not to think much about. So the process of making this exhibition, I can talk about briefly. So we're in special collections and it moves the application. The application gets, which in the application we have to say, who's it for? Why are we doing it? Which is basically what we've spoken about. Yeah, so very briefly, I think over the past five to 10 years, we are asked, and I think it's a good move to produce, to go out out of beyond our ivory tower. It's something I don't <laughs> like particularly because I don't think we exist in a bubble. Uh, we are not an ivory tower. Ultimately, what we do is education. I strongly mm. believe in it. I hope we get message across uh, about uh, our past. So, but anyhow, um, over the past five, ten years, um, we are asked to to do outreach, whether this is a talk at a local school, at a local library, mm. but produce these kind of impact outreach events. And I think for Esperanto, um, I think for me, this was almost a logical project to do. And then we decided we went from the objects so we started with objects we started with five boxes of objects display objects right? sorry yeah display objects so things that were in special collections that we were going to display deciding how we were going to create a story from those five boxes of objects so i guess we're talking around almost 50 around 50 original objects then things change so we are down to two boxes and then now we are down to one we were down to one box and three like little three boxes that would fit one thing. So around 13 objects. Now we're down, we're basically down to 10. So that changed, that was over a period of, I would say like a year that that was changing. I feel like the beginning of this year, we started to decide what would go in. And from there, deciding on the objects, we had to decide what else would be in the room with these objects, like in the middle or wherever. So one of the early ideas which we went through was postcards dangling, um, you know, replications, not the real ones in special collections. They look really real, though. People yes. were, have told us that they think they're the real ones. Let me see. Oh, 
never mind. They're on a string. Um, Yara Libro uh, just printing replicas of the pages and putting up just to show the immense like amount of Esperantos at this time on the back wall. We decided to do a timeline mm -hmm. uh, about Esperanto in the wider world and Esperanto in Scotland. So to like color coding it basically um, from around when that of course from when Zamenhof creates Esperanto, but on up until the Paris Conference International Congress in 1914 is cancelled. And then we go into because we have like we have in special collections the album from the 1912 International Congress in Krakow. We took pages of photos of the Scottish Esperantists who go to Krakow, including John Beveridge and some other woman who I researched and seeing their faces, I was like, oh, there they are. Um, <laughs> we printed photos of them and the information about them, put them on the wall so you give a face to this movement mm -hmm. or a few multiple faces. Group photos from Krakow, which are in Bernard's office as well. An Aberdeen photo of or the Aberdeen or Perth group in 1919. And then, of course, short blurbs for the exhibition objects, an introductory blurb. There were a lot of moving parts. We made, oh, I made a map. Yes. I made a nice QGIS map where Bilbao was in the wrong place, but we won't talk about it. I made a nine minute video where apparently I speak really fast, according to Bernard, but that's fine. We had to listen to our voices over and over on the day <laughs> at the opening. It's just one of those loud, fast speaking Americans, Claire. Yeah, that's just me. <laughs> I think they're all aware of that by now, the listeners. And so we made that. And the video, I think we did a nice, or I, we, I, I did a nice job of putting in photos. <laughs> of our process um and like us working on things drafts we went to print and design what 10 times at least oh more than that more, more than that more than speaking that. love shout out print and design Rhonda and dean were absolutely lovely and very kind to us and helpful about figuring out what would look nice how to print things helping us print things multiple times to get it right oh god duolingo cards that was bernard's big thing printing out duolingo of like you know today how would you learn esperanto having people like try and translate or make sentences out of, you know, how do you, you can move the words and make a sentence. Then we had to do for like this uh, school of history, the feedback um, thing. So we made, a, we made a Google form, asked basic stuff. How did you like the exhibition? What, what did you learn? But then we also did little postcards about like, what does fair and egalitarian communication mean to you? And the other one was, what was your favorite exhibition object? Fun little interactive questions uh, about like how many languages you speak? How would you learn a language with little like coins almost that you put yeah. into boxes, which I think, you know, people are most likely to do that because it's more fun. So it was, there was a lot of moving parts to get to that stage of like deciding what will finally go there. It took us a long time and a lot of discussion and it took us a lot of time, a lot more time than we thought to put it all up. Um, and it, at first it was just Gim and I sitting, <laughs> sitting there for two days being like, how are we going to do this? But we did it in the end. And I think it looks nice. I think, I think one of our regrets is not getting someone else besides us in earlier to check how it looks to someone from the outside. Because of course we've been sitting with this material for over two years. So basic stuff, we were speaking about this at the opening, putting up like timeline, putting up world map, like stuff like that, that we think is like self-explanatory, a map on the wall, a line that has dates, um, will make it look a bit more professional or like very museum-like. But you know, it was, it was just the three of us in an effort of three people trying to make an exhibition for the first time. And I think we did a pretty good job.
Do you have anything mm -hmm. to add? I wanted, I want you to talk about reception from the other academics. Yeah, we happy to do so. We are some 10 days in since the launch and I happened to be in museums over the weekend with the workshop group, um, guided them through it and then went through the first sort of 10 days feedback. And the first thing that surprises me is just a number of people who come in. Mm. It's difficult to say how many, but I would extrapolate that over the course of seven weeks that the exhibition will be running in total, this will be seen by at least 1,500 people. And that, just as a sheer number, is that a lot. Um, that for small towns St. Andrews yeah. is actually very encouraging. What I find even more inspiring is the feedback we're getting. Claire mentioned little boxes where you can put in a little sort of um, a chip, a green chip, whether you speak one language, two languages. And I'm surprised by how many people actually leave, leave mm. us that feedback. And even more so are a postcard that asked, and Claire was alluding to this, what was your favorite item and what does fair and egalitarian communication mean to you? And another separate one, what is it you'd like to know more about? And I find what just the fact that people take those two, three, four minutes and write on these postcards is very encouraging. And just to give you a few examples, um, I think the mess. I think we get the message across how widely geographically connected the movement was, and people are seem to be surprised uh, by that. I mean, we were surprised by that when mm. we first started mm -hmm. this whole project. Others point out the longevity of of. Um, so people have heard about Esperanto. Say if many people say yes, they've heard about it, but they're surprised about longevity. I've picked up postcards saying, "Oh, we thought 1950s, 1980s." So I think we're getting something across. This is a much longer. Uh, still in existence, uh, the movement and, and the language. Um, and the people, when we ask in terms of favorite objects, and I guess that doesn't surprise us, is the postcard. So mm -hmm. seeing mm -hmm. the means and the technology of communicating, and I said, I think earlier, I said Bilbao, Sarajevo, Dundee, and Oslo and elsewhere, it, it really is quite astonishing. Um, what people then would like to know more about is the making of the language in Samenhof. I mean, there's only so much you can do in a single rectangular room with, with angled walls. Um, the construction of the language, but I guess we covered that. If you if if we inspire people to engage with Esperanto, this is what they can find in, in books. It's readily available, I would say. When once and what I find very inspiring is that most people then say when we ask, would you consider learning Esperanto? The most the vast majority ticks the box and say, yes, now we're curious. Now we'd like to know how this actually sounds and works. So so far, so great. Also we didn't even we don't talk about this in the exhibition, but another colleague here at St Andrews Manuela. She has spoken about how for young people, Esperanto uh, is also like, can be attractive because of the passport, the modern aspects of Esperanto that people also, modern, the more recent aspects of Esperanto that people just don't know about of like how in different parts of the world it is used by young people and has a use. Like I think some people would say, oh, it's useless, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, because as I said before, Esperanto is not officially or customarily spoken anywhere in the world. So if you want to speak Esperanto, you have to create a context in which the language can be spoken. So one of these ways of creating a context is this, which is nowadays a website, but back in the day was a book called Passporta Servo, like the passport service, which was basically the earlier version of what nowadays is Couchsurfing. So we could claim that Couchsurfing was first created by Esperanto speakers. Because this idea was that I'm going to welcome you in my place if you come to visit my city or if you want someone to show you around the city or something. Uh, and then we can speak Esperanto. 
because we are both part of the same community. Mm-hmm. Like you may be German and I may be Brazilian, but once we meet, we are from the same community. We have something common. Aside from the fact that we speak the same language, we maybe learn the same Esperanto books, or we may have some friends in common. So the language would be one of the elements that would bind us together. And these cases of couchsurfing would be one of the occasions in which this speech community would gain materiality. Because as Claire mentioned before, uh, for Esperanto speakers to meet on a regular basis, there are, let's say, weekly meetings at Esperanto associations, Esperanto clubs, and also annual Esperanto congresses. But other than that, you don't have necessarily many opportunities to speak the language. And not every Esperanto speaker will attend these international congresses. And when you have a service like Passport Servo based on Couchsurfing, then you create other occasions for this language to be used. And of course, another reason to use the language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can stop there. Thank you, Bernard and Yim. Do you have any final words for the hot girl historians, the hot girls? Well, I would like to thank Hot Girls uh, History Podcast for having us, uh, chatting us through. I mean, you played a lovely double role here as host and and uh, part of the research team around it. I would say come along. What are the final words? Come along. If yeah. you are around St. Andrews, come along. The exhibition, once again, big shout to everyone involved, is up and running until the 29th of May. So there is a bit of time, but do come along. Leave some feedback. And if not, uh, Claire mentioned a book in the making, hopefully out next year, a book that revolves around this material and John beverage so if you're interested keep an eye on it and if you're in St Andrews you can also message me and I'll come with you to give you a special exclusive tour because obviously what's on the walls is there but if you have it from one of us who have been you know researching this for over a year we can give you more to the story as well and Claire will guide you in Sprint of course of course <laughs> so I can definitely speak it so thank you very much Claire for the invitation thank, uh, you. thank you hot girls for <laughs> having us here so and hope hope to see you in San Andreas at the exhibition. Yes. Thank you. Dankon. Here's your first Esperanto. Dankon. Yeah, first <laughs> word. Bye.